Well, good morning. good morning. So how many of us like a Cinderella story? You know, a story where someone who maybe didn't see who they were, at least the world around them didn't really notice that they were special, finally realizes who they are. It becomes clear in some way at the end who they are, that they're beautiful or that there's something particular about them that makes them chosen in the end, that gives them value and dignity or vindication. I heard somebody joking that like everyone loves a Cinderella story. Even Gladiator is kind of a Cinderella story. Cinderella stories, stories where people who might be in a suffering, struggling position, eventually overcome the odds, and against expectations, walk into a future full of promise. We all love to watch those stories. But I would hazard to guess that not every one of us would enjoy being Cinderella before the magic of the story comes true, or when that part of the story feels far away. None of us really want to be the tormented, mistreated, outcast stepsister in our world. Being in that position is tough, right? It's awkward. It feels bad. It's conflicting. Sometimes there's this kind of feeling of shame. And so often in our culture, we want to avoid any kind of conflict, any kind of shame, any kind of awkwardness, anything that might put us in an unfavorable social position. We often avoid any kind of identity that might make us the outcast stepsister of our society. For the recipients of Peter's letter, they would know what it was like to be the outcast in their society, a person looked down upon, mistreated, who the people of the world thought of as shameful rather than honored. When people came into contact with the message of Christianity, the message was rejected, and people were often offended at the Christian claim that the traditional ways of life for those who don't know the true God were futile. And in response, people made life difficult for those in their societies who followed Jesus. These were fiery trials. Peter talks about how there was mocking, how there's slandering. Paul wrote that the Christian faith was spoken against everywhere when he spoke of that at the end of Acts. And often, people described Christian faith as pernicious superstition, according to the historians Tacitus and Suetonius. So being a Christian, according to the people of the Greco-Roman world, was shameful. Honor was given to those whose behavior conformed to the accepted norms. But in that kind of a culture, harmony in relationships is what is seen as important. And so the violator of harmony bring shame. These Christians believed what their society considered shameful. And today around the world, that remains true. And so one of the questions for us today is whose perspective really matters. And Peter's answer boldly asserts that there is an honorable identity given to those who are dishonored for the name of Christ. They are, by God's values, regardless of the value given to them by the people in the world, honored. So if you're a follower of Jesus here today, there's something about you, something Cinderella story-esque, and it doesn't just make a difference for your future. It also beckons to be embraced by you now. See, Peter won't 
let us sit in the world with a victim mentality, seeking to just avoid shame. The promise of the Cinderella storied future is to serve as the present motivation for living out our identity now. So let's look at our text for today. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 to 10. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Let's pray as we begin. God, we thank you for your word. And we pray, God, that we would hear your word and embrace it. That what you say is true of us in your word would be lived out functionally as true in our lives. And so help us, God, to, to hear and to be doers of the word by the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray this in your name. Amen. So, verse 4 puts it this way. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Jesus is the living stone. That's what this is all about. We come to a living, alive, a resurrected king whose spirit lives in his people. So this whole story, our whole story, is centered on him. It's redeemed by him and lived for him. Our Cinderella story is going to look like the Jesus story. The story of Jesus ends great with Jesus recognized as the resurrected king, the living stone. But the drama of that story, like the drama of the life of Peter and his readers, the people who we give this letter to, people who follow Jesus, and really us, if we follow Jesus, the drama of that story is not neat and tidy. It's filled with suffering and rejection. One commentator says, the status of Christians depends upon the status of Christ, for they are joined to him. He suffered and was rejected. He died, but he rose again. The people Peter is writing to are acquainted with the cost of following Jesus, like the suffering and the rejection. 
For remember, Jesus is alive and working in and through them. So though they might be rejected, they are chosen and honored by God. They have an inheritance, as Peter wrote earlier, that won't perish, spoil, or fade. So Peter's going to bring that out in his metaphor of the stone that we read about. And in particular, this is a metaphor that's taken from the Old Testament, and Jesus used it to refer to himself as the cornerstone. Now, this metaphor comes from Isaiah 28, Psalm 118, and Isaiah 8. And in Isaiah 28, God is speaking to the princes of Jerusalem, his people. They're really confident in themselves, and they believe that nothing can destroy them, that no death will come to them, but they don't really care for God. God says, you know, actually your pride won't protect you. Only one building can stand against the storm of destruction, and that's God's building, established upon one sure foundation stone, and that stone is called a cornerstone. Jesus tells us that's him. Now, in the building technique that a cornerstone is used, a cornerstone has to be perfectly square, has to establish the right angle, the right level. It'd be the first stone put in place for the building, and it's really important because by it, the whole rest of the building is built up. Now, in Isaiah 8, the stone is God. And Isaiah says, people are going to have to reckon with this stone, even though they might wish to ignore it. Peter returns to Isaiah 8 later in his letter, in chapter 3, when he uses the same language. He points out that Jesus is God, and we're to set him apart as Lord, as King of our lives. He's the stone that will be unavoidable for people. And though many may think little of him and reject him, he is the cornerstone. He's the cornerstone of God's salvation plan and really all of life. Jesus referred to himself as the precious cornerstone in Mark 12 in Matthew 21. He's the sure foundation stone for God's church, for God's people. And in God's plan, interestingly enough, the way that Jesus was rejected by being sentenced to death and crucified on a cross, that rejection was how Jesus became the cornerstone. That's the way he was honored and that he saves all who trust in him. See, the way the whole plan of salvation was laid bare and unfolded through Jesus' life was through suffering and rejection and then resurrection. The chosen and precious cornerstone was set in place in spite of the builders rejecting him. Peter in Acts 4 told the people who had rejected Jesus that though they reject him, whether they accept it or not, he is the only way to salvation, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. So in our passage today, where Peter writes that the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone that causes people to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall, that tells us that Jesus is not just rejected in the past by the leaders of Israel, but by all who do not believe. And so Peter warns that those who stumble on the cornerstone, who do not believe that Jesus is God, and that salvation is in him alone, will be broken by their unbelief. This is the stone that people trip over when they hear the good news or refuse to hear and take it into themselves, the good news of God's saving plan. The cross and the resurrection had set out what God had set for it to do. 
but many reject Jesus. And friends, part of our mission is to declare, to tell others about this Jesus, who is the only way to have a relationship with God, to have forgiveness of sin, and to truly walk in light in our world. See, this cornerstone might have been dishonored and rejected, but he was chosen by God. And so Peter wants to emphasize that though the recipients of his letter, and really Christians over the centuries, though they may not have honor in the eyes of the world, in God's eyes, they do. They have honor. And therefore, they need not be ashamed. Christians, as they are united to the cornerstone, united to Jesus Christ, are honored by God. One of my professors said, God takes what the world rejects and builds his household on the reality of Christ's resurrection. But Peter is also reminding his readers that the experience and destiny of those who come to Christ are bound up with the experience and destiny of Christ himself. Suffering and then honor. And in the end, as Peter quotes from the Psalms, those who put their trust in the cornerstone in Jesus Christ will never be put to shame. And yet, we are tempted in our culture to feel the sting of shame and to shy away sometimes from telling about our Savior, from living boldly in our convictions by the power of the Holy Spirit. In our culture, it's conveyed that talking about Jesus could violate the harmony of the workplace, of the neighborhood, or wherever we might live and talk and eat. And so, often, we fold our hands. No doubt, Peter's original hearers might have attempted to fold under the pressures that the society was putting on them. But Peter wants them to see and hear that those who trust in Jesus, though they may suffer like Jesus now, they will have no shame in the end. And this is for us too, right? Peter wants his people to know who they are so that they can live out their identity boldly. So who are those who trust in Jesus? Are we just what society says? A bunch of weirdos and people of pernicious superstition? Just religious wackos with a pie-in-the-sky mentality of life and unacceptable views in our modern society? No, Peter calls followers of Christ living stones being built into a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and God's special possession. You want to know who you are when you place your faith in Christ? Because it doesn't matter what the world tells you you are. You know whose perspective of you counts? The God who created you, who created you in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for you to do. The God who gave his life for you. When you trust and throw your weight upon the rock, as the psalmist so often calls God, when you trust in Jesus as the cornerstone, the God who created you says something different than the rest of society, and he means it. God calls you part of his family, his chosen his royalty, like princesses and prin princes and princesses, a, a special possession. And it doesn't matter what the storms of life throw at you. What Peter writes here, if you trust in Jesus, 
is true of you. So let's unpack for a moment what Peter says is true of God's people. First, we are living stones being built into a spiritual house. Now, so often we think of stones as like lifeless rocks, but Peter says we are living stones. You know why? Because God's spirit lives in you. God's life is in you. His spirit, his presence is in you. One preacher put it this way. He said, God's architecture is biological. Paul puts it like this. You are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. So we grow up together as a holy temple of the Lord with new stones added and other stones refined. We're united in Christ, which means that each of us have the spirit of God living inside of us, which gives meaning to our personal lives, but it also builds us up as a church that belongs to one another. This house is a family. It's not about the building we come to. When we gather as a local church, regardless of where we gather, God is with us. We don't have to beg him to show up. We don't have to be in some sacred place. God is here. In all our world, where many people are undergoing persecution, they can know that God is always with them. We are God's temple. And also, like the people of Israel, we are claimed by God as distinct In Exodus, God calls the people of Israel to be a holy nation and a kingdom of priests. You know why? Because God is so close to them that their access to him is priestly. Believer, you've got that. You've got his spirit living inside you. You have access to God like that. He lives in you, you living stone. And this is something amazing. When Israel had disobeyed and went into exile, God promised through the prophets that one day the people of God would be priests of the Lord and ministers of our God again. Jesus, in Luke 4, when he opens up the scroll to Isaiah 61, the passage that speaks of that promise, he says that the day had come and was fulfilled in him. And in the same breath, he also revealed that this meant something for the whole world, not just Israel. This holy and royal priesthood would be for all believers from every people group and was spread to every nation in the world. Every believer, Peter says, has been set apart to serve in God's presence as a priest would have and really to make much of God in this world through Jesus Christ. Juan Sanchez says that the church is a royal priesthood whose purpose is to praise God with both our verbal witness and our conduct. And so Peter's concern is for the overall witness of the church in the world. And that witness includes a life that praises God and a verbal witness that proclaims Christ. See, royal royal priests have a mission to serve God. But in our world, that mission is unpopular. So what do we do when we have an unpopular mission? Do we rationalize it away? Or do we embrace the hardship 
as Jesus did when he died and stretched out his arms on the cross so that he might lovingly embrace us. What's it going to be? What is the spiritual house built on? What are our lives built on? Is it solid rock or sand? See, the identity of the Christian as a living stone with life built on the solid rock doesn't change when the storms of life come. The rock, that precious stone, stands as a solid foundation. That identity gives us a mission regardless of what the culture around us says. There's this part in the Chronicles of Narnia, the silver chair, where Puddleglum, a marsh wiggle, this interesting Narnian creature, defies the green witch by saying, I'm on Aslan's side even if there isn't any Aslan to lead it. I'm going to live as like a Narnian as I can even if there isn't any Narnia. So he's surrounded in this dark area where it doesn't, he's not, it doesn't maybe feel like Aslan's in charge. And that's what Puddleglum says. You know, it may feel like Aslan isn't here or that the kingdom of God isn't in charge right now, but it is, and it's coming. And we are called, like Puddleglum says, to live like it's true, to live as a royal priesthood, to declare God's praises in the midst of a place where how we live is not honored but sometimes shamed. But the thing is, as Dwayne Elmer, a cross-cultural educator and professor says, shame in its ultimate sense, is the disruption of harmony between the creator and those created. And we often try to secure our destiny in a place other than the creator. See, we do live in a world where people so often try to secure their destiny in a place other than God, other than their creator. But we are called to worship him and point people back to harmony with him, to encourage them to secure their destiny not in the things of this world, in the cornerstone, in Jesus Christ. Now, when it comes to living out our identity, we face similar challenges in our culture as Peter's first audience did. Different but similar. The full-blown physical persecution to Christians likely hadn't quite hit its full force when Peter was writing this. But people were facing social ostracism, financial difficulties as a result of their faith. They were already spoken against, mocked, and slandered in the culture. And today, what Christians believe, what we believe, often faces similar public perception. We may also face slander, mocking, and social ostracism for our faith. Here are some reasons why. The exclusivity of Christ, meaning that he is the only way to be made right with God, to live eternally. That's a belief that our culture finds problematic. Our view on who we are as embodied humans and how that relates to our sexuality and identity stands at odds with our culture's view on sex and identity. Our belief that people need to be saved from sin, that we're sinners, is frowned upon. Our belief in the resurrection of Jesus Christ is also a stumbling block to many. See, these are some of the things that are part of who we are, part of who we are because we believe that What God says is best. And because we believe that by his love for us, he has given us his son, and that that transforms and reorients our loves and is worth basing our whole life on. So even though we might know our inheritance and we might know the true outcome of our faith, 
Our culture's view on the implications of our trust in Jesus does not make it easy to walk around with our head held high as the people of God, people for God's own possession. So how can we live on mission in the midst of a world that would rather see us ashamed and tucked away? And what is our mission? Well, Peter says that our mission is that we are a holy priesthood offering up spiritual sacrifices while declaring the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his wonderful light. The writer of Hebrews puts it this way, through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess his name. And do not forget to do good and to share with others, for with such sacrifices, God is pleased. That's part of what we offer to God. The fruit of lips that openly profess his name. That's a starting place here for us. How do we live out our identity as those who await future honor in a world that sees our message and the claim of our cornerstone is shameful? We open our mouths, speaking from our heart, and openly profess the name of Christ. Now, we covered a lot of the practical how-to for that in our, sermon on, in our series on evangelism, speaking of Jesus. So go check those out on the webpage if you didn't get a chance to hear them. But I want to say one thing. We aren't going to be able to do this with a world that continually shouts at us, keep it to yourself, if our hearts are not wowed by the beauty, the sheer grace and unmerited mercy and lavish love that God gives us in the gospel. We've been called out of darkness into wonderful light. And that good news is not meant to be tucked away and kept in the dark. When the Apostle Paul had his encounter with Jesus Christ, it completely rocked his world. He went from killing Christians to telling the good news of God's mercy all over the Roman world. His love for Christ made the rejection and hardships that he had in the cities he went to because he brought it up worth seeing others come to know Jesus worth seeing people being saved from their sin. Is it worth it to you? It's true that some of the people we love and tell about Jesus will stumble over the living stone and reject him. But it's also true that when we proclaim his praises, some of the people we love will hear and their lives will be changed forever. I think it's worth noting too that the word spiritual sacrifices does still carry the meaning of sacrifice, of giving up something for something greater, of making a sacrifice, not, not a sacrifice for, for our own sin that saves us. Jesus did all that was necessary to save us from our sin and bring us back into a relationship with God. Like, we in our good works and faith don't save ourselves or contribute to saving ourselves. We sacrifice out of a heart that worships, that loves God and has been saved by God. And of a heart that loves God more than our comfort and place of honor in this world. A heart that believes he is actually worth losing face for, facing dishonor for. Amy Carmichael, one of my favorite poets, writes this. Hast thou no scar, no hidden scar on foot or side or hand? I hear thee sung as mighty in the land. I hear them hail thy bright ascendant star. Hast thou no scar, 
Hast thou no wound? Yet as the master shall the servant be, and pierced are the feet that follow me. But thine are whole. Can he have followed far who has no wound or scar? The question Amy asks cuts to our hearts. When we say we follow Jesus, are we willing to obey him, to go out, out of joy and love for God and others, and share of God's wonderful works, even if it costs us, even if what we share gets rejected? Or are we going to justify living like it doesn't really matter that much? Will our identity and the love we've rejected, we, we, we've received, sorry, move us outward? Worship and mission going hand in hand, boldness and praise flowing from souls lit aflame with purpose, ignited by the wondrous love of God. Do the wonders of God's grace captivate us more than the wonders of this world? Those who originally received this letter, they would have known giving up privileges. They would have known the feeling of shame associated with losing their membership to the guild they worked for because of their belief in Jesus. They would have known the reality of being mocked for their belief in a crucified Savior. They would know the emotions that you and I might face if we were mocked for telling someone about how wonderful we believe God is. And they would have known the feeling of being rejected by others because of their views and behavior that didn't jive with the world around them. And Peter wants to encourage them in the midst of this. I went through a time where I faced social ostracism for my faith in Christ. And I remember, I really remember, trying to avoid conversations with people. I remember trying to avoid it. I remember the struggle to grow in my faith and come out of fear into actually boldly sharing God. You know what made a difference for me? Understanding the good news of Jesus. Like actually understanding the depth and power of his love. That while we were lost in our sin, he died for us. Like it took God's love overwhelming me with wonder to come alive in me before I could really count it joy to suffer for Christ. I had to learn that I was a living stone, that I was actually alive in Christ, not just rejected, but also chosen by God. I remember how sometimes during a baseball game, the coach would say, look alive. Like, get ready. Know where you are and what your mission is. Do we look alive in our walk with Christ in our world today? Are we ready to sacrifice? Are our eyes looking up and about, ready to praise God and to declare his praise to others? Because we might be rejected. But we will not be put to shame in the end when our trust is in the living stone. The same living stone who was rejected by the world but chosen by God. So where is Where's my focus? Like, whose perspective of me matters? Am I wowed by God's grace, moved by his mercy, drawn by his love to declare the praises of him who called me out of darkness and into wonderful light? See, evangelism, declaring God to others, is doxological, a word that means praise-centered. It flows not from a sense of duty, but delight. Right? It flows from our worship. We all love to talk about what we ultimately love, so what do you love? If you're a believer here today, what do you love? Or maybe more importantly, who do you love? Do you love yourself and how others 
view you more than you love God or even their eternal destiny? Juan Sanchez puts it this way, and I think it serves as a helpful reminder to us to get us to think deeply about what we were made for. Here's what he says. There will always be two building projects. The world builds its own structures, seeking to go higher and higher in order to make a name for themselves. Sounds like the Tower of Babel, if you're familiar with that. But God is at work building his own structure, the new temple on the foundation of Jesus. We were made for so much more than making a name for ourselves. We were made to make much of God through Jesus, his son. As we give up our own pursuit of fame, we actually find ourselves, because we find ourselves part of something bigger and more durable. God's building project is eternal. Humanity is fleeting. It will fall down. It always does. One day, God will shake the heavens and the earth and bring humanity's building project to a thundering crash once and for all. All that will be left is what is eternal, that which God has built, a spiritual house built with living stones, making much of God. So if that's what's coming, what will we do? Will we live out our mission with a sense of wonder at what God has done for us? Will I live like Puddleglum in the face of the green witch? Or am I content to sit, sink back into the background of our world, afraid of the shame and reproach that might wait for me if I step out? Can I live like Cinderella, knowing what's to come before the prince comes knocking? I guess it comes down to whose opinion of me and you really matters and what really I am here for. May it be our cornerstone. May we declare and be moved by the wonder that Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, scorning its shame. May we declare the wonder that God has called us out of darkness into marvelous light. May we declare that because of Jesus' death on the cross, we have received mercy and forgiveness. May we declare the wonder that because of Jesus, we are God's people. May we proclaim the wonder that God is wonderful. May we be living stones, a royal priesthood offering up spiritual sacrifices, declaring the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his wonderful light. Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you that you endured suffering and rejection so that we could be brought back into a relationship with you. God, you give our lives purpose. Help us, God, to know who we are, to fix our eyes on you, and to walk, not fearing the scars that may come from rejection, but just awed at the wonder of what you've done. May we sing your praises wherever we go. We pray this in your name. Amen.